All right, chapter 2, verse 16. He says, uh, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. So again, as we mentioned last week, uh, I guess the essence then of legalism is this notion or this idea that God's acceptance is earned, whether that is uh, we think we can earn a, to be in a position to receive salvation, uh, which that cannot be done. Uh, it is a gift to all. And there's nothing we can do to make ourselves more savable. Um, legalism is also this idea that maybe our salvation can be maintained through our behavior. So again, the idea there would be this. When it comes to our salvation, there are no conditions. Okay, now, we must receive it by faith, but there are no conditions as far as behavior. You know, it's, like, we would not say this. Well, you have, to be, you have to give up this sin before you can get saved. We don't say that. Now, if the individual was to ask the question, can I keep doing this, whatever the sin is, when I get saved, the answer would be no. But it's not a precondition to where you have to give it up and then once you give it up, then you can come to Christ. Uh, Christ forgives us of our sin. There are no preconditions. He then gives you a new heart. And one of the things that the Lord would do is to begin to transform your life so that that sin would no longer be desirable. In some situations, whatever that sin may happen to be, some individuals will be able to give it up immediately. Others, there may be a struggle. But the idea is that there's this transformation uh, that takes place in your life. So when it comes to your salvation then, there is, there is nothing you have to do conditionally to remain saved, but as a saved individual, there are obligations. And we don't want to get those two things confused. All right? So I am obligated to live in obedience to what God has said. All right? That's demanded of me as his child. Uh, the Bible does not give us, in the New Testament, there are not 800 suggestions. There's 800 imperatives. All right? So those are commands. Uh, so if we fail to do those things or to obey, that's sin. Uh, the, what we want to do as believers is we do want to sin less as we live this life that God's called us to live. We will never become sinless in this life. But we, we want there to be this idea of advancement uh, in our life as a, as a believer, which involves both the out, out, outer life and the inner life. Right? So the outer life are those outward things that we do. But there's the inner life that other people may not even be able to see. That would be the attitudes that you may have towards others that you keep hidden. Uh, whether it's prejudices or maybe a grudge that you hold, maybe a certain attitudes, maybe there's a cynicism, uh, a bitterness. All those kinds of things are sinful and against what the Word of God says. There's an expectation there's, uh, by God. There's an obligation on our part to become more like Jesus Christ, to mature uh, as believers. But again, our salvation or maintaining our salvation is not based on meeting any particular kind of condition. So God's acceptance of me is not conditional. It is offered freely through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, and that is, that is the singular best news there is, uh, to say the least. And so that is why we ought to be grateful. Um, but God is so gracious that even in that, um, because sometimes individuals will, they will think this way. Well, I want God to know how thankful that I am. And so uh, I'm trying to do all that I can to either pay him back for what he's done. But God never asks us to pay him back because we can't. Okay, that's an impossibility. 
It's okay that we reveal our gratefulness by obedience, but it's never this idea of paying God back. God doesn't demand that. God isn't desiring that. That's, that's, not, on the, that's not on the table uh, because, again, that would then be a condition. So we need to realize that we are completely accepted by God, uh, and that is, that's phenomenal. And based on maybe how you were raised, uh, maybe based on how you've read the Scripture or how you've been taught, there can sometimes be some misunderstanding with that where an individual begins to think that that is a license to sin. And it's not a license to sin. You know, that doesn't give you the freedom to go ahead and do whatever you want because, well, I'm forgiven. But it never changes the fact that you are forgiven. And so there's that tension that's there um, that, and we never want to, we want to make sure that we never diminish change or alter the teaching of the Word of God because we want to try to direct an individual to believe a certain thing. We want to teach what the Scripture says, always try to correct the misunderstanding, but we don't have to change what it is to clear it up. And that's where sometimes legalism comes in. A person may think, even a pastor may think, well, I don't want others to misunderstand this, so I'm going to emphasize maybe some of these rules here because this will help them. Now, those rules might be helpful, but if they're not in the scripture, he needs to be honest and say, this is not in the Bible, but I think these are helpful. He can do that. But if he begins to make it sound like that is what the scriptures are teaching, and he's kind of altering maybe what the implication of the word is, that can be dangerous to do. Yes, Ron. Uh, but you must repent first. Yeah, there's no, no one's denying that. Pardon? No one's denying that. <laughs> well, you know what? Whenever you talk about the gospel, you can never make all the points all the time. There's too much there. <laughs> but yes, absolutely. So again, in Colossians, there are false teachers who were apparently telling the Colossian people, the, those in Colossae, that faith in Christ is not enough. Uh, and so whenever you hear anyone that even hints at that, um, that is wrong. What they were doing is, again, they were basically bringing in some of the regulations that you find in the Old Testament law. Um, basically, the idea would be Jewish law-keeping, and that is not a form of the gospel. Any form of Christ plus anything else always has to be rejected. Uh, if you were raised in the Catholic Church, you may not be aware of this, uh, but if you're raised in a Catholic Church, when the Catholic priest or whoever speaks about the gospel, it may sound like it's the same thing that we are defining, but there's something they add to it, and that is that salvation is by God's grace plus your good works. And so that's why we have the Reformation, uh, because what, was, what needed to be reformed was some of the doctrine of the church, and that's what Martin Luther and others were emphasizing, was that it is, again, Christ plus nothing. So again, we're not advocating anything against good works, but they have no part in salvation. They would basically be the evidence of salvation. Uh, but again, with that, please make sure that you're careful that we don't begin to even make a list of do's and don'ts, even if it comes from Scripture, as a test um, to evaluate someone else's, uh, I guess, uh, where, where they stand as a Christian. We can talk about the standard that God has set 
we need, need to make sure that we're not just making a, a list because if it's not complete, it will tend to be arbitrary, those things that we naturally gravitate to for whatever reason. And we then once again begin to make it sound like it's less of a relationship with Christ and more of a, a rules-governed relationship. And it's not a rules-governed relationship. So again, in a marriage relationship, uh, we would say that faithfulness on the part of each spouse is expected. Right? But it's, and it's expected not only because we would say, well, that's part of what love is, that should also be what? The desire of the heart of each person. So, so the, even though there's an outward demand for faithfulness, what both really, I guess even if they haven't stated it, would want is they would want their spouse to want to be faithful. Right? I mean, the last thing you would want is on your fifth anniversary, wanting to say, well, I mean, I've been faithful because you know I have to be. I don't think that's going to be a really good romantic dinner. Um, you're going to have some problems because that's not how you would express that. Uh, the idea is that that person wants to be faithful to you because they love you. In the same way you want them to be faithful to you. So again, this, that's why we always talk about, or at least we often would mention this relationship that we have with Christ. So just a really quick word on that. So when we talk about this relationship with Christ, what some people misunderstand is they think somehow that our Christianity then is private, that it's, that it's personal, that it's only between me and God. But that's not a biblical concept. It's an, it's an American concept uh, that were kind of developed in the 60s and 70s, I think because of misunderstanding of how we use the English language. So what I have with Jesus then, and we, a lot of people will say this, it's not sinful to say it this way. We talk about we have a, you know, I have a personal relationship with Christ, and that is accurate. But it might be more accurate to say that I have an individual relationship with Christ. And the reason why I say it that way, even though it kind of sounds odd, is I, my salvation is based on my faith in Christ, not my parents. But I don't want to say personal, because too often personal people think what that means is private. Now, what I mean, that doesn't mean that I walk around bragging that I'm a Christian, but I'm not trying to keep my Christianity a secret. Right? We are commanded to live in a certain way. Uh, to be kind to others, to be patient, to be gentle, um, just all these different things that are in there. There's nothing private about any of that. Um, and uh, in countries where there is heavy persecution, uh, again, they don't have a list of rules, but in many of those countries, there seems to be kind of an understanding that if an individual becomes a Christian, no matter what you do, others will know usually within a week. Now, that, that, that time frame is not in the Bible. But there's this idea, because I've, I've heard people ask this question before, usually from Americans, when they're talking to somebody who comes from a country where there's heavy persecution of believers, like, you know, where you're arrested or you're beaten and all those types of things that happen. And so they say, well, what if an individual becomes a believer, but they try to keep it a secret? And in these countries, most of the people, like, I mean, they have, they're totally confused by that question. Like, they can't even imagine anybody would want to do that. Um, but they understand that there may be individuals who may, for example, let's say pray a prayer, but they've, they've not trusted Christ. And so then what comes out of their mouth is some kind of a statement um, that says, well, we believe that if no one knows within a certain number of days or whatever time period that they're accustomed to, then they would say, well, we, we doubt if they've become a believer um, because they don't see how that's possible, that people should be able to easily tell by your behavior 
um, that you're a believer. And this isn't, we're not talking about individuals who were maybe the drug user and now he's not the drug user, the individual who was the drunk and now he's not a drunk. Those do happen. But they believe in normal everyday interactions with individuals. You will be able to tell by that person's selflessness and humbleness, etc., that that individual, there's a change that's taking place in their life. Uh, and so that's kind of the idea that uh, is going on there. So there's also warnings against mysticism. If you look at verse 18 of chapter 2, uh, Paul writes, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So there are false teachers, and sometimes the way an individual gains uh, a following or maybe an attraction is they claim to have had some kind of experience, or maybe they claim to have visions uh, that come from God, and because of that, that then gives them the authority or the right to say or maybe to teach. You know, that's their basis. Um, if, if they're challenged, they'll say, well, did you, know, did you hear from God? Or did God tell you this? Or did you experience this? Well, I have. And so the idea then is that you are in a, some kind of a special relationship or you should have a, a uh, there's something unique about you that sets you above others and gives you then the right to say whatever it is that you want to say. I can't hear you. Asceticism? Yeah. Uh, I didn't read that word. It's in the ESV. Oh, I'm in the ESV. Oh, well, read, read the verse. Let me hear it. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Oh, okay. Ascet okay. Um, that is where individuals may, may live a very disciplined kind of life and claim that's because they, they, of this disciplined life, they are um, above you. You know, it'd be kind of like, well, you should listen to so-and-so. Why? Well, because he's, he's truly spiritual. Why is he spiritual? Well, he, in his house, he doesn't have any furniture. He lives, this, he lives this kind of, you know, that's lifestyle. And he doesn't eat meat, and he doesn't do this, doesn't do that. Yeah, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the idea. Well, that sometimes that's what ends up happening. Yeah, sure. Um, all right, so that would be false humility is kind of what that is, whether you want to tie it into spirituality or not. Um, so again, mysticism, uh, in, in many religions, there is mysticism exists in some form. Uh, again, oftentimes, uh, the idea, um, especially for those who may per who pursue that, is they don't always say this, and they might even deny this, um, but, the, but the idea is to avoid objective truth or attempting to bypass objective truth, to gain a direct experience with God or from God, so it's the shortcut kind of a thing, because they may be enamored, again, by having authority or having others admire them. There can be a lot of different things that drives an individual to, to do that, but the idea is, is to shortcut um, the, basically, the, I would say, the studying of Scripture and understanding what it says it means. Uh, that's what it gets to. Um, and uh, I've even talked to individuals who've actually said that. Uh, I was talking to an inmate once, and he told me that he thought God was calling him to be a pastor. So I asked him why. why? And he did. He said, this is what he said. This is word for word. He said, well, I think I could, be a, I think I could do a good job of telling other people what to do. <laughs> and so I said, 
I said, you know, I pastor a church. I don't tell people what to do. He said, you don't? I said, no. Now, I tell them what God says. Um, if I think they should be doing something, I may say, I think you should do this. But I never tell people what to do unless I'm telling them, you know, this is what the Bible says. So if I tell you, you should not commit adultery. I'm telling you that. But that's what the Bible says. So I'm not, it's not from my own authority. It's what the scripture says. He goes, oh. He says, well, I think I could do that too. I said, great. I said, you've got to start studying the Bible. You've got to know what it says. Because that, that, that is our source for everything. And that's what we have to know. But there are those who do. It, it can be very um, alluring to have experiences. If you talk to anybody who, and without even questioning if the experience really is from God or not, that could be another issue. Let's just assume it is. Uh, many individuals, they like that. It can be very exhilarating. Uh, they can be, it can be uh, uh, even an emotional high uh, for individuals. They, they may, uh, because they'll say this, they may feel close to God. I'm not sure what that really feels like. But again, they will say that. Uh, and again, the idea is um, whether they're trying to get a following or not, um, it does detract in one sense from the hard work of being a believer. There is some hard work in being a believer. All right, we, there, there is. When it comes to reading scripture and being disciplined, you know there are times that that's not always exciting. We're human beings. The problem isn't with the word of God, the problem is with us. All right, sometimes, I don't know if you ever had this experience, but you've read the Bible because you know you're supposed to. You're not sitting there saying, oh man, I can't wait to read the Bible today. There's nothing else I want to do. Well, there are times there's, I'm thinking, oh, there's other things I need to do. <laughs> there may be other things I would like to do, but I need to do this. Right? That's not sinful right, to have that. I, I, I think that we may have that from time to time, and as we grow as a believer, that may go away where we don't even think about it. But we need to make sure that we don't have this idea that as a believer, that you always have to have some sense of excitement about everything about the Christian life. There are, in, in every aspect of life, there are some things that are mundane. I don't know if you know this, but if you get married... Sometimes it can be mundane, you know. For my wife, I try, I try to help my wife out the house, and I fold clothes a lot. Of course, when we had four kids, there was a lot more to fold. But I fold clothes a lot. I don't mind. Notice how I said that. I didn't say, oh, I can't wait to fold clothes. <laughs> I, that doesn't come out of my mouth. Right, but I don't mind. You know, I wash dishes a lot. In fact, I don't even like dishwashers. I don't, to me, it's a waste, but that's just my opinion. I think it's a lot faster just to wash dishes. Again, I don't mind. And I know my wife loves that. So I do it. All right? Do I do it every day? Not every day. I do it a lot. But the thing is, is that there's, in, within the Christian life, every aspect of the Christian life is not that. It's just not. And it's okay. You know, we're not, we're not demeaning Christ in any way. We're not demeaning Christianity. All right? Christianity is not, you're not always on a spiritual high. All right? you're, just, you're not. Um, but again, that's also not an excuse to not live as we ought to live or read the Bible or all those types of things. Um, and so we have to be careful. If you do, now let me just throw this out there because I don't want to get into a discussion how to evaluate if someone's experiences from God or not. There may be some easy ways to tell, but let's just not go there. Let's just do this. So if someone says that they have heard from God or they've had an experience that means certain things from God, then my contention is, okay, whatever it was, it was for you alone. No one else. 
You need to adhere to whatever that message was. It's not for you to write a book. It's not for you to make a movie. It's not for you to make money. It's not for you to try to influence. It's not for any of that. It's for you. Read in the Bible. Um, oftentimes, like I think that when you go into the, the life of Joseph, in the very beginning, the, the Lord showed Joseph through dreams that, his, that there a day was coming that his brothers would bow before him uh, and uh, he would be the authority. I think he messed that up when he told his brothers. There doesn't seem to be anything in the dream that said, you need to go tell your brothers this. Now, he did do it in a bad way anyway. He was kind of, you know, maybe kind of bragging kind of a thing. But that was for him. So that when he would go through those discouraging times, he could remember those dreams. And we know that he did. You know, he was, of course, his brothers got jealous and sold him as a slave. Maybe that would have happened. Maybe it wouldn't have. But he was. And then when he was thrown in prison, when he was uh, unjustly accused of attempted rape, when, and there was no trial, uh, and you're in prison for years, you know, it's easy to become discouraged if you say you believe in the one true God. Why are you where you are then? You know, if you seemingly have been forgotten. Uh, and that would be an encouragement to him. That was for him. Uh, it's for our sake as well, because we know we read that and we see how God communicated to Joseph and how those things came to be true. But that was for him. So today, with most individuals, if they, if they claim to have an experience, I know that normally I'm not going to be able to convince them that it wasn't from God. So there's no sense in me, I'm not going to try. I don't want to, I don't want to argue with them. But what I will do is challenge them to say, okay, then what does that mean? What does it mean for you as a believer? And some people, you know, there's a lot of different answers. And some, like I've even had a few people say something like, well, I know for sure that God is real, that God answers prayer. I said, man, that is awesome. That is so great. I said, now you know how you express that in your life as a believer. The way you express the fact that you know that God is real, that you know that this real God has given us real commands and told us how to live. We need to show the world that. I said, it's not showing, it's not telling them about your experience it's because your experience will prove to them that God exists because it won't. All right? We go back to the scripture. What does the word of God say? And the scripture makes it clear. You go to Romans. What is the power of God for salvation? It's not your experience, not your vision, and not your dream. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. And so that's what we get back to. Um, and so apparently there is various teachings about mysticism that's going on. And so Paul is then giving him this warning uh, against mysticism so that uh, they can recognize it and not get caught up in it, whether they're following the wrong person or maybe even pursuing it. And that's where I think uh, maybe to a, even a, maybe a greater degree uh, believers are affected, and that is we want to have a similar experience as someone else has, and so we, we, we want to find out more of the details so we can maybe recreate that for ourselves. And that's not what that's for. Um, and so there's people who get caught up in that, and normally that leads them away from the Lord and their walk with the Lord because they're, try they're trying so hard to have this experience. Um, so again, I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not necessarily against experiences. I'm not for experiences. And again, if somebody says it's from the Lord, that's, that's okay. But again, uh, too many people get caught up in trying to manufacture that. That's why, um, I don't know if you are aware of this, but there's been a, a debate, maybe some tension in many different churches, normally Western churches, for a real long time when it comes to worship services. 
And that is because there are some who are trying to create an atmosphere that is either spiritual or to create an atmosphere uh, whether they, like some will say, well, we want to create an attitude where people are more open to the Word. We want to create an, an attitude or an atmosphere where people are more open to the leaning of the Holy Spirit. So why are we trying to create that? All right, that's, that's a man-made thing. That's not in the Bible to do that. Um, and so the problems we're having in worship is it's not so much always the music, but it's what's what people are trying to do with it. Um, sometimes it's usually what comes along with it. Uh, that's where sometimes music ministers can get in trouble because they start saying things. Like if they're quoting scripture, it's not a problem. You don't want to take things out of context, but quoting scripture is fine. But they may sometimes say some things that will lead people to begin to think or imagine the wrong thing. And that can be a problem because you're, you're kind of giving some bad theology. And so in this goal to create an atmosphere that is quote-unquote spiritual, then can be, a, again, a problem because people are, are more, they're, they're believing that that church service is special because of this experience or the feeling. And we don't want people to think that. Uh, the way we evaluate a service is, is it God-honoring? Are we following what the scripture says? Um, uh, are we doing this for the right reason? You know, all those types of things that, that go on in a worship service. So we just want to be aware of those things. And, and, um, and then also sometimes what happens is, and this can happen to anybody, and that is just to make sure that uh, whatever is going on with experiences or maybe trying to create a certain atmosphere in church that we're not uh, either feeding our own ego or feeding someone else's ego. Right? It's about Christ. It's not about us. It's, it really is about him. And so, uh, you know, in our church, um, like, for example, I'm not against solos in church. I'm not against it, to so be careful, because we don't want to come across where that individual is getting accolades. So I'm not against individuals appreciating what they do, because I like good solos, too. I really do. And sometimes they can be extremely moving, and that's terrific. But what we have to be careful of is that may not be the best venue to do that when, we're, when we gather together, at least on a Sunday morning for corporate worship, because it's not about that singer, right? Uh, so there's, we don't have any hard, fast rules. Like, we don't have a rule here, no solos on Sunday morning. We don't do that. But it's pretty rare because we want to be careful to make sure that the Lord is the one um, who is um, the focus. So if there's good, uh, we want good music, like the people who play piano and guitar and mandolin and even drums and all that, we want that to be done really well. We want that to be terrific. We want the sound to be very pleasant and uplifting. We want all of that. Uh, and we can even appreciate what the, uh, all the practice, because it does take a lot of practice for the musicians, for all that to come together. We appreciate that. But it's not, a, it's not about that. And I think with everyone we have involved doing our music here, I think they would always tell you the same thing, that they do want to do well for the Lord, but they don't want to detract from the Lord. And so there, that can be hard, but I think it can be accomplished. And I think our attitude towards that is, is where that comes from, and that's important. Then there's, uh, uh, in looking at verses 20 through 21, it says, Since you have died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
So this is more along the lines of the individual who lives the very disciplined life and tries to get others to live a very disciplined life where, where the focus is on what you're giving up. You know, I'm, I've given up this, I've given up that, because it makes you appear, and you may be more self-disciplined. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay, again, we, we're not trying to pass judgment on people just based on what we observe, because we have to be, we have to be careful, because we don't know what the, uh, the motives are. So an individual may... If they bring attention to themselves and then tell others, well, I no longer use a mattress at home. I sleep on the hardwood floor. Um, and they then attach to that some special significance in your walk with the Lord. That can be a problem. At the same time, I know the story of Hudson Taylor. I had to think of the name of it. Uh, he was a missionary to China. So when he was going to school, Bible college, uh, when he moved into his apartment uh, there in Chicago, because he's going to go to, to uh, I think it was Moody Bible College. When he when he moved into his apartment, the very first thing he did was he got rid of the bed and put a straw mat down. But he wasn't doing that to be more spiritual. What he was doing was because he was asked about that, and he said, "Well, when I go to China, they don't have beds. They sleep on the mat, sleep on the ground. So if I get accustomed to a bed, then I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm not going to get sleep. There's going to be all these issues." So if I discipline myself to sleep on the hard floor here, I'll be able to sleep anywhere. Uh, he got rid of most of his clothes. Again, he wasn't pretending to be poor. He got rid of his clothes because he said, well, when I get to China, um, I'll need to be able to move around rather quickly. And the last thing I need is three trunks of my belongings. Be easier for me to move among the people and minister uh, the word of God if I am reduced to just carrying whatever I can carry on my back. So he had very practical reasons for doing what he did. He didn't go around bragging about it. He wasn't saying it was a path to be more spiritual. He wasn't telling others they should do that unless, he, unless they said they wanted to be a missionary. And he'd say, well, I'm suggesting this, and this is why I'm doing it. Uh, so he was, that, and I just, I think, when I read about that about him, I thought that was really incredible. I mean, I don't even if I would have even thought of that. You know, I might have thought about, wow, I'm going to be sleeping on the ground. I'm going to sleep in the bed every night I can get. <laughs> because I only have, you know, another year left, and then it's going to be, oh my goodness. All right? But no, I thought that was a really good thing. So someone may be doing those things for reasons that are really very good. At the same time, we have to be careful. Now, this isn't really a problem too much in our country, because most individuals who are going to lead us astray with bad teaching, etc., usually lean in the direction of what we call health and wealth stuff. You know, God wants you rich. So I'm driving a Porsche so you can be encouraged uh, that God can bless you too. I have a 12-bedroom house so that you can be encouraged that you can have the same. Okay, that's not, <laughs> that's not how that works. All right, but that's normally where, where people are going to err. Very few people are going to say, well, I only have a, uh, a, a studio apartment because I want to be close to God, and that's what you should do. Yeah, that's going to be a small following. But again, back in these days in particular, that really was a huge uh, issue. Uh, people, there are a larger number of people who took religion very seriously, uh, and this idea of living this way uh, was kind of, I don't know if it was ingrained in people, but it was not an uncommon thing. They were very accustomed to hearing about that kind of thing, and so that was appealing to people. Uh, and there were times, if you read through the history of Christianity, where there were times where there were in individuals who were literally just giving up things. And if you see the development of the Catholic Church, there were certain chapters uh, within the church where there are individuals who, that's what they did. They would take a vow of poverty. Um, 
and they would do so for various spiritual reasons. And again, many of them, I believe, were very sincere and maybe even believers in what they were doing. But their goal was to help the poor, to not acquire any kind of wealth, um, because they believed that would have been selfish and wrong and that would not be edifying Christ or being like Christ. And so they lived in that way. Um, so there's a lot of aspects to that. But what we have to be careful of as we look at the warnings of Paul is to make sure then that we aren't attracted to these things for the wrong kinds of reasons and that we don't somehow assume that just because an individual is living that way, that then makes what they say accurate. That doesn't make what they say accurate um, because they, they may be saying the wrong thing. They may be saying the right thing when they teach the word of God. But we want to make sure that we are not judging by externals. And again, if you go and you're reading the Old Testament, uh, remember there was a time when God told Samuel that he was done with King Saul and, and he was not going to allow anyone from King Saul's family to become the next king of Israel. And so he told him to go to uh, Bethlehem and find a man named Jesse. And he said because one of his sons was going to be appointed king. And so uh, when um, Samuel went, he called Jesse and, and they were going to make a sacrifice to the Lord. And he said uh, he wanted to meet his boys. And so the oldest son was there first. And so Samuel said, certainly, Lord, this is the one that you want to be the next king. And the Lord says to him very clearly, he says, don't judge by externals. I don't, I don't judge a man that way. And so then as, we, as you're familiar with the story, he goes to all of his sons and none of them is who God wants. And so then that's when Samuel has to ask Jesse, do you have another? He said, well, yeah, I got my younger one. He's out in the fields. You know, he's a shepherd. And he said, well, we're not doing nothing till he gets here. And so when he came, he was the one. It was, uh, it was David. So the idea there that God makes clear is that he does not judge by outward appearances. Um, so we need to make sure that we don't judge either positively or negatively because of outside appearances. Um, sometimes individuals can appear to be have it all going on and have their whole life together. And because of their appearances, that's very appealing to people. And they may set them up in the leadership, and that's the wrong person. At the same time, uh, sometimes individuals can go the opposite direction and see an individual who has their whole act together and maybe good looking and go, oh yeah, there's no way he's from God, he's too good looking. So we don't, it's not what we're doing, okay? We want, to look at, we want to look at the heart, which means again, when we talk about look at the heart, that's not just are they sincere, right? That, that may be part of it, but we're looking at the inner man. So that is, yes, are they sincere? Are they humble? Are they obedient? Are they... Um, do they um, uh, carry with them the joy of the Lord? Is there a commitment to Christ uh, in character? Is there a, a strong love for the word of God? All those things. That's what we're looking for uh, in that and, and not those other things. Um, it is said that D.L. Moody, when it came to, uh, because back in the days of D.L. Moody uh, in the 1700s, uh, you know, there was no radio, there's no movies, there's none of that, those kind of things. And so what would often happen is Sometimes people would not only go to the theater, but they would sometimes go and listen to someone who was an orator um, for entertainment, and sometimes for education, but for entertainment, to hear a, a good speaker, um, and people would flock. And so it was not uncommon for many pastors to have that kind of a ability. They were, they were very good orators. They had this, you know, whether it's I'm not sure what all the qualifications were. I guess a baritone voice and the voice could carry and they could enunciate words really well. All types of things. And so, uh, and many preachers and many of those that were used by God could speak that way. However, there's D.L. Moody, 
according to the things I've read, D.L. Moody had a nasally high-pitched voice that was irritating. Um, and uh, many, there were times when people would make fun of him because his skills with the English language were not really very polished. And so there's a story that he was going to go speak um, in the University of Cambridge in England uh, at a chapel service. And there was uh, three or four young men, students there, and they had heard these stories about D.L. Moody. And they were, according to their, their own uh, testimony, they were very uppity, thought that they, that, they were, that they had great class and education, they were proud of it. And so they heard about this Yankee from America that was just a disaster. And so what they were going to do is they were going to come to the chapel and they were going to listen to him and they were going to basically, I guess in a sense, count all of the mistakes this guy made and they were going to mock him and make fun of him. And so they, they arrived there that day and D.L. Moody was, he was a very godly man, spent a lot of time in prayer and he prayed a lot before he got to speak. And so when he went to speak at this chapel, he gets up and he says in this very irritating, nasally, high-pitched voice, if, if you... I'm trying to remember how he said it. If, if you don't believe that God don't love you, then you ain't got no sense or something like that. It was just a horrific sentence in the English language. And these guys are looking at each other and making all kind of faces. But according to their testimony, as D.L. Moody continued, they eventually, as the message went on, they dropped this idea of trying to count all the ways that he was embarrassing and they were listening to a man who loved God and loved the Word of God, and they were cut to the heart, and they were convicted uh, of their sinful attitude, and one of them was convicted that he didn't even know Christ, and they became believers. It was just a tremendous story to read. Um, and so again, the idea is, is that it's not an excuse for us to do anything poorly, but the idea is, is that God will use whom he, whom he pleases, and he looks at the inner, uh, at the inner person, and he's looking for one who loves him, who's humble, who submits to him, and all those things. And so Paul really is saying the same thing to them as he gives them these warnings. And then if you look at uh, chapter 2, verse 23, he says this. Um, he says, uh, he talks about these regulations of don't touch, don't handle, etc., don't eat. He says, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So basically what Paul is doing here, he exposes these kinds of practices um, for what they are. They're an attempt to attain spirituality from the outside in. That's what we've been talking about, that you do these set of things and you will become more spiritual. So that's why we always have to be careful when we encourage people in what we call the spiritual disciplines that the Bible talks about. The Bible talks about us spending time reading the Word of God, talks about us spending time in prayer, talks about time that we spend with other believers in worship, praying together, worshiping together, studying the Bible together, all those things that's, that's in the scripture. And we call those the basic spiritual uh, disciplines of the Christian life. And we are to have those in our life. But what we have to remember is, it is not just doing those things that magically will make you a certain way. Because you can do those things in the flesh and get nothing out of them. All right. So, again, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things where we, we would say it this way. It's from the heart. I don't like saying it that way because that really isn't the best way to say it. But 
the idea is, is, and it's not just that I'm sincere, but then so I, when I spend time reading the Word of God, I'm not only doing it because I'm supposed to do it. You know, I, I may be doing it because I'm supposed to do it, but when I start reading, I really want to know what God is saying. I really do want to understand it. I really do want to remember this. And so we begin to read. When I pray, I don't only pray because it's my duty. It is my duty, but I want to pray. I know that I need to pray because I need, uh, I need God's help in everything I do. And I came across something very interesting. I'm, I'm reading through the Old Testament in my own Bible reading right now. That's where I am. And oh, I'm trying to remember where, where I was reading, because I'm reading very, it doesn't matter how much. So I was reading the Old Testament, and there's this, there's this uh, statement by one of the prophets, and he says that he doesn't want to sin against God by not praying for them. And I just never thought of that before. I never thought, you know, like, so if Jimmy asked me to pray for him, and I say that I will, and let's say that I don't, all right, that's not a good thing. And he doesn't know this, but in a sense, I've sinned against him. You know, he thinks I'm praying for him, I'm not praying for him. You know, I forgot, for, or whatever's going on. But I've, even though it's in the Bible, I just never noticed that sentence before, to where I am sinning against God if I don't pray for him. Not because I just told him I would, because that's not what the context of that passage. He just says... God forbid that I should sin against the Lord by not praying for you. That really struck me um, and reminded me that, again, it's a responsibility that I as a believer have to the Lord to, to live in this way. Uh, I, just, I, I think that's a fabulous statement and one that support. Yes, ma'am. Sure. And there were so many comments on her thread about, you know, <laughs> right. you know, it's a big controversy. Yeah. And about how our men, even good men, tempted because of how women dress, mm -hmm. even though they shouldn't be, and all this. Yeah, yeah. Of course, you, you put yourself at risk for things that people say are your fault if yeah, you dress yeah. a certain way. Yeah. And one lady got on there and she said, this can all be. Yeah. And that's about a lot of things I think that we have mm -hmm. bad attitudes about is we shouldn't yeah. do it for this reason, this reason, this reason. We should do it because mm -hmm. it says in God's word that it pleases him and yeah. he expects it from us yeah. no matter what else is going on. Yeah, I agree. Yep. Hard to disagree with that. Um, yeah, we are to, we are to uh, as it says, I think it was it Second Corinthians, no longer live to please yourself, but to uh, live to please the one who died for us. That's a paraphrase, but basically that's the idea. We no longer live for ourselves. Uh, we're living for him, and that's what we want to do. So again, the idea here that Paul is against and warning against is this idea that we can attain spirituality from the outside in uh, because that's a sham. It doesn't work uh, because it can't change the heart, and that's really what, what the Lord wants to do is he wants to change our hearts uh, in dealing with these issues. So even though outward obedience is good, again, the main emphasis, I believe, is that the motivation and the drive comes because the heart is changing. It is good to obey until your heart changes, so I'm not against that. You know, there are times that we just do what's right because, 
You know, when we grow up sometimes, I remember there were many times I obeyed my father only for one reason. I didn't want to get in trouble and I didn't want to get whooped. That's why I did it. But that was still a good thing. It was good for me, good for my health, uh, but it was good. And then eventually what happens is, if, uh, you know, if you're a growing believer, it's pretty soon, it's not really such a command that's hanging over your head because it's what you want to do. You want to live that way. You know, it was a long time before my father had to tell me to be nice to my sister. Because I wasn't always, well, both of them, I wasn't very nice to them. I wasn't necessarily mean, well, I was mean. Um, but the idea was there a time came when, when then I, I wanted to be that way. And they never had to say that again. It's kind of the idea um, as a believer. So again, what, we, what Paul is concerned about is there's many things. But again, there's a desire that there's a genuine change in our hearts as believers. Um, and that is often seen in the way that we treat others. And then what's also going on on the inside. So when it comes again, so let me, uh, if you look on your notes, uh, we've gone through the first uh, three on the back side. It says insights from historical studies. So this is, uh, again, trying to figure out this heresy that he's, that he's fighting against or the, what the issues are. So again, no one knows for sure who these false teachers that Paul is speaking about, who they were. We are not sure on the specific heresy or heresies that were troubling the believers in this, uh, in this city. Uh, but again, there is a, there's a general description that we've been dealing with. So I want to read to you a quote from a guy named Clinton Arnold. Um, he uh, uh, talks about, um, he's a historian concerning the Roman Empire, and he says this about Colossae. He says, the Christians at Colossae lived in an environment of religious pluralism. They coexisted with people who worshipped Anatolian, Persian, Greek, Roman, and Egyptian deities, and with Jews who were devoted to the worship of one God and the observance of Torah. The manner of devotion and religious expression was quite varied among the different groups. So what he's trying to get at is this. It's the same way today. The dominant religious attitude, the fancy word is syncretism, uh, and that is where you select and you blend religious ideas into new forms, normally that they, they run streamlined to whatever your desires are or to your wishes. Um, in some books you read, they might call that a designer religion. I, I don't know if that's really a... I guess it's a way you can talk about it. Uh, but the error that seems to be going on in Colossae and what Paul is warning the church people about is the mixing of Christian, Jewish, Greek, pagan, and mystical elements in, all together. Um, and so we have to be very careful. That's a very, a, that would be a very American thing. You know, when people say things like, well, it doesn't really matter which religion you believe, they all say the same thing. They clearly don't. Now, there are some similarities. There are some things that are the same. Most religions will tell you that it's wrong to murder somebody. Right? Most religions will tell you that you shouldn't steal from others. So there's some moral things that are there, but in essence, they are very different. All right? They, so they do not lead to the same God. They are, they are, you know, their definition of God is all very different. But what's happened, and what does happen sometimes, is not the individual set out to say, I'm going to be a syncretist. Uh, they don't say that. But where we just kind of pick and choose the things we like. Um, and it, I saw this a lot growing up in Hawaii, because there's a huge mixture of cultures and religions in Hawaii. Um, Many after living in Hawaii after a while, most become very apathetic, and so there's even this greater blend. And so individuals actually feel very, I don't know if they feel good. I don't, I, maybe they do. 
but an individual would say, oh yeah, uh, you know, this week I've been invited to my friend's church. He's a Mormon. I'm going to go there. What a bunch of good people. Um, I've been to Bob's church. Oh, what a, you know, where Bob goes. Oh man, those people are very nice, very kind. Um, And next week, you know, I'm going with my friend to the Buddhist temple. And man, they're just, they're very humble. And all those things that are saying in specific are true. But what they're basically saying is, is that all these things are the same. That there's nothing different. And that I'm actually this magnanimous person because I like all of them. And I'm not going to, and it's almost a position of, of superiority by saying, I don't say any of them are wrong. I just look for the good things in each of these things that we can, you know, we can take from them and then adopt those things. And that will be, you know, and then kind of move that way. And there are many people, and I've heard people say this, I've heard the discussions. Wow, I wish I could do that. That's, well, that's a wonderful attitude to have. Because the idea is to be non-confrontational. Um, the idea is we don't want to ever say that anybody is wrong or that maybe anybody is right, much less that we're right. Um, and the idea is for all of us just to kind of get along and that these things don't matter. So when it comes to that, uh, you know, you've heard me share before about some of the things that um, Francis Schaeffer said. And so he, and one of the illustrations that he uses that he's pretty well known for is the way that he describes how modern man approaches truth. And so he says you picture a house, a two-story house. So on the first floor, you have what he calls brute fact. These are what he would call real facts or true, true facts. This is where science is. This is where real history is. Uh, this is where physics is. This is, you know, that type of thing. And these are the things that we, you know, this, it, it, because this is where science is and all that, this is where we can know what really is. Then when you go upstairs, you have religion, philosophy, myths, fables. They, they mix all that together. And so that's the way that we approach life. And you, some, if you start listening to people talk, or maybe if you, when you watch how they are on TV, you'll begin to hear this. When individuals begin to espouse the importance of science, which all Christians should be in favor of real science. Science is important. It's from God. But the idea is that science is the standard of truth. But then when it comes to religion or myth, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you're not hurting other people. Or as long as you're being kind, or whatever it happens to be. And so, uh, and again, the belief uh, is, is that there is no such thing as true truth in religion. There is no such thing as one religion that's true and others that are false. But if you were an adherent to any of those religions, you wouldn't say that. If you were a Muslim, you would never say there's no truth in religion. Because you believe that Islam is truth. If you were a... It depends on which sect of Buddhism you're in, but even they would say that, they would, they would even make dogmatic claims, or the, even though they might say they, they don't, they would make dogmatic claims that what the Christian says or what the Muslim says really is wrong. Um, so no one thinks that. And so, as we, I've mentioned this to you before, that sometimes what can get Christians in trouble, which you can't help, is when we start telling individuals uh, or asking an individual, how do they know what they believe is true? Because there are many who just assume, well, that doesn't matter. It's just, it's just my opinion. You have your opinion, I have my opinion. So it doesn't really matter. And, of course, we believe it does matter. You know, death is real. There really is life after death. There really is a judgment. We are going to be held accountable for our lives. And there are those who go to heaven and those who go to hell. So it matters a great deal when it comes to what you believe. 
and how you know whether or not it's true because there's a great deal that's at stake. But the world wants to live in denial of that. And so that's why, again, this, the, thing, the warnings that Paul gives about how we practice Christianity, who do we look up to as far as who are the leaders or who are, who are going to be influential? How do we gain true spirituality? You know, who is Christ in all of this? And how does that kind of, you know, unfold in our lives as, as individuals? And so that's why these things are said the way that they're said. He is making very dogmatic statements when he makes these statements here. Um, he, is, he is stating what is right and what is wrong. Um, so again, it's not because he's being arrogant, and we don't repeat them because we want to be arrogant, but we want to believe the truth. And they want to make sure that we pass on the truth to others. Um, and so that's what, uh, that's what he's doing. We'll stop there, and we will finish up some of the uh, syncretism um, uh, next time we get together. And then we'll talk about some Gnosticism, and then we'll talk about um, the latest suggestion as to what um, the heresy may have been specifically, which I think is very interesting. And then we'll move back and we'll finish up uh, in the book of Colossians and move through it and um, get a good handle on what's being said there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you, Lord, for your grace and kindness and goodness. We thank you, Father, again, for all these things that uh, Paul has said. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to always take a, a good inventory of where we are in our walk with the Lord. We pray, Lord, that it would be our desire to honor you with the way we live, that, Lord, that we would treat others in the same way that Jesus would treat them, uh, with kindness and love and patience and gentleness, that we will learn to be firm like Jesus was when it comes to truth and, de and declaring the truth and explaining the truth. Uh, but, Father, that we would... Uh, do all we can to make sure that whether it's with strangers or with our families, uh, that we're living uh, the right way and that we're living in light of what the Word of God has to say. Father, we know that you've been very patient with us because we live imperfectly and we know, Lord, that we don't deserve to be forgiven for the way that we live. And yet, Lord, you are loving and kind and gracious and you do not turn your back on us. And we thank you for that. So we ask, Lord, that you would continue to instruct us in the right way the Father, that we may have great joy in our life, that we may enjoy the world in which you've made and the world that you've placed us to live in, that we may live in truth, the Father, we may live in righteousness, and that, Father, again, our joy may be full. Thank you, Father, again, for being so patient with us and for blessing us the way you do. We do thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <laughs>